I thought we could begin this morning with a for fun guessing game. I'm gonna, I have 25 facts up here about a mystery man, the most, uh, the most amazing sort of man. Uh, for those of you ladies who are always watching those Hallmark shows, think of the best man, you know, put all the best characteristics into one person, and, um, and this is who I'm going to be describing. This is a person, if you've watched TV and you've had to watch commercials in between 2006 and 2018, then you will have um, encountered this man. So I want to give you some facts, which uh, some of these just completely crack me up. But there, it's really said about this man. And um, 25 facts. And, and when you think you know who I'm talking about, just raise your hand. And once I see enough hands, I'll stop. But you might, you might not get on the first or second um, fact here. But let's see if, uh, how many of us know who I'm, who I'm talking about. Here's some facts. Raise your hand if you think you know who I'm talking about. Number one, if opportunity knocks and he's not home, opportunity waits. He can slam a revolving door. Steak and lobster is his bread and butter. The locals ask him for directions. He is the life of parties he has never attended. Anyone else? Anyone so far? If he were to punch you in the face, you'd have to fight off the urge to thank him. These things have been really said about him. Sharks have a week dedicated to him. I don't see a lot of hands quite yet. If he were to mispronounce your name, you'd feel compelled to change it. For this man, therapists open up to him. His small talk has altered foreign policy. He once ran a marathon because it was on his way. Sasquatch has taken a photo of him. Anyone guess yet? I see a hand. I'm starting to see some hands. Here they come. All right, you're starting to get it. He once gave a pep talk so compelling, both of the teams won. Your guess is as good as his. On second thought, no, it's not. (laughs) His organ donation card also lists his beard. He's a lover, not a fighter, but he's also a fighter, so don't get any ideas. He once parallel parked a train. It has never been his bad. Both sides of his pillow are cool. Isn't that incredible? When in Rome, people do as he does. Anyone else? Anyone know who I'm talking about yet? I saw a few hands. He has inside jokes with complete strangers. Cuba imports cigars from him. Mosquitoes refuse to bite him purely out of respect. He he doesn't always move to the other side of the campfire, but when he does, the smoke always follows him. And the last clue, he is the most interesting man in the world. Raise your hand if you think you know who I'm talking about. All right, I see some hands. Anyone, anyone want to tell me who, who who am I describing here? Yes, the Dos Equis guy. Can, can we see the picture? Anyone know this guy's name? How many of you knew this guy? How many of you were encountered this guy? All right. So, some of you have seen him. His name, he's actually an actor. His name is uh, Jonathan Goldsmith. And Goldsmith, actually, he landed the gig for the commercial by auditioning for the role. 
auditioners were given the ending line, and that's how I arm wrestled Fidel Castro, and they were asked to improvise. So apparently during his interview, Goldsmith, he came up with a story. He took his socks and his shoes off, and he um, used his sock as his main prop, and he told a crazy story, and he won the role of playing an older, bearded, kind of debonair gentleman. The, uh, and for over 10 years, Jonathan became famous for being the most interesting man in the world. That was the slogan for the product. He is the most interesting man uh, in the world. It was one of the more iconic marketing campaigns in the United States um, of the last 50 years. But not so much for the audience of, of Hebrews. The original uh, hearers of Hebrews would not have thought of Anthony Goldsmith if you had asked them, who is the most interesting man in the world? For them, they would not have thought of Anthony. They would have thought of a guy named Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Melchizedek is one of the most mysterious men in all of scripture. And the preacher of Hebrews is now about to, to dedicate an entire chapter to, to the man and to the myth, to the legend himself. Now, the preacher has, he's mentioned Melchizedek three times already in this book. He mentioned him in 5 verse 5, chapter 5 verse 10, and then in 620. So he's been slowly leaving some breadcrumbs like a good baseball pitcher. He's just been winding up, and now he's finally going to throw the, the pitch. And the congregation, the people would just love it. They would just love to hear more about this man. Upon a, peer, a mere mentioning of his name... Melchizedek, the congregation, would have smiled and they would have sat back and they would have gotten ready for some humor, for some craziness, for some, for some legend things happening. They, they, they would have thought to themselves, this, this is going to be really interesting. They've always wanted to hear the scoop on this dude because Melchizedek has always been mega mysterious to these people, to the Old Testament people and even to the New Testament people. Melchizedek was unlike anyone they had ever heard of or seen before. There was a lot to this guy, but no one really knew how to like handle it. No one knew how to access all that was true about this, this man. After all, in the days of the Old Testament, you couldn't be both a priest and a king. You could be a priest, you could be a king, no one could be both, but somehow Melchizedek found a way to be both. Melchizedek never gives his money to others. Other people give their money to him, as far as we can tell. Somehow, Mel Melchizedek, he lived a real life, but he's never had a father or a mother. He was a real person, but somehow he has no end. His life was like a riddle. It was like a, a living, walking Rubik's Cube that uh, no matter how many times you kind of flipped it around, you just couldn't quite figure it out. It was hard to solve, and so for thousands of years, everyone wanted to know, who the heck is Melchizedek? Who is this guy? That, that is the question that I'm going to try to answer in our sermon over these next two weeks, and hopefully it'll become clear why it's all so important. There's really so much in these chapters. There's so much to this guy that it's really going to be impossible for me to survey all of it in just one sermon. So we'll do like a, a, a two-part sermon uh, here. This is the first of two parts. And I really want you to prepare yourselves. 
If you are, if you are hoping to suck on a bottle this morning, um, you are going to leave disappointed. If you're looking for some candy, then you definitely walked into the wrong store. The preacher of Hebrews, when he gets to chapter 7, he, he's going to go from milk to solid food, and he's going to start right away with a feast. And from here on out in this book, we, we have really advanced. If you've been walking with us throughout this series in Hebrews, we, we're, we're now advancing in our coursework from arithmetic to calculus. He's really fast forwarding here. We're going from elementary courses on the alphabet to an advanced doctoral seminar in Christology. Hebrews chapter 7 is by far, for me personally, one of the most theologically demanding, biblically rich, structurally complex passages that I have ever come across. And it's well worth all the hard work it takes to understand it. Because through it, we're going to see Jesus on display So let's get right into it because we don't have all day. And even if we did have all day, that would not be time enough. So let's begin by reading Hebrews chapter 7. I'll have it on the screen, verses 1 to 3. He begins this chapter by saying, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and Melchizedek blessed Abram or Abraham. And Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father or mother... This man, Melchizedek, was without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, Melchizedek continues as a priest forever. So here the preacher in Hebrews, he begins describing one of the most mysterious men in all of Scripture by recapping what happened and that story of what happened to Abram in Genesis chapter 14, where Melchizedek, this guy, he comes out of nowhere. No one has ever heard of this guy before. And right as things start to get interesting, he disappears into the night and he doesn't show up again for another 1,000 years after the fact. Then he does show up 1,000 years later. I'm sure you remember the story of Abram, don't you? Abram was the founder of the Israelite people. Big deal. He was the founder. He was the first hall of famer of scripture. It all began in Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abram to go and move. Remember that? He says, I want you to go move. God tells Abram that his name will be blessed and his people will be blessed and the, his, the land wherever he goes will be blessed. Abram had no guarantees, but he believed God And then Abram took God at his word, and then Abram went. He wasn't quite sure where he was going, but he started his journey. At the ripe old age of 75, Abram took his brother Lot with him. He took the rest of his family, packed up the U-Haul, so to speak, and they set out in the direction of Canaan. So then on their way, they encountered a few difficulties. One particularly difficult experience was that four different armies were teaming up against Abram, and and Abram had to defeat all of these powerful enemies, which he does in the beginning of Genesis chapter 14. 
And then the weirdest, most mysterious thing happens in Genesis 14, verse 8. If you've opened up to that, that's good because we're going to walk through this passage. Genesis 14, verse 8, something crazy happens right after the big shot. Right after that head honcho Abram, he accomplishes those big time victories. And there's these four armies and he, and he finds a way to outsmart the armies and he, he gets the victory. Then something peculiar happens. At that point, a very confident, mysterious figure comes waltzing out with some bread and some wine to meet Abram in Genesis 14, verse 17. Now, I wonder when I say uh, bread and wine, who do you think of? Who is that? Okay, good. Jesus. Uh, for the Old Testament people, they would have had no answer. No one's come um, around with bread and wine before. This is new imagery for them. So the Old Testament people are curious. Who is this? You know, um, well, we find out in Genesis 14, verse 18, that this man is both a king and a priest, like I mentioned. Now, already the Israelites would have been stunned because the hearers who would have known they would have been listening. They would have known there's no such thing as someone who is both a king and a priest. In those times, that literally was not allowed. That'd be too much power for someone to hold, be easy for them to kind of uh, manipulate and, and take over. Um, and so God just didn't want that to happen. He wanted a little bit more accountability, typically. Kings would come from one tribe, the tribe of Judah, and the priests would come from another tribe, the tribe of Levi. You, you really couldn't have, uh, you couldn't have both. But not so with Melchizedek. This man is mysteriously both, we find out in Genesis, 4, in Genesis 14. So the people are asking, how could he have come from both Levi and Judah? At this point, Abram is encountering a, a, an impossibility. Something that they thought was like against the law. It could not be done. This was an enigma. What, what is happening? Who is this man? So the hearers would have tried to figure it out. As they're listening to the story, they would have said something like, well, wait, may maybe he's just a priest of another God. You know, maybe he's worshiping in a, in a different temple and he's going according to different rules. And so that's why he's both a king and a priest. But this is not the case. Genesis 14, verse 18, look at it. We're told Melchizedek is priest of God most high. Melchizedek is a Yahweh follower among a people group who have never heard of Yahweh before. How did this come about? How has Melchizedek received word about Yahweh? How is he preaching about Yahweh? We have no idea. No idea. How is this? This is a mystery. And then there's his name. There's something about his name. They hadn't heard of someone being named this before. Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness and peace. Later in Isaiah, the prophecy said that the Messiah would be called the prince of peace. But, and then the prophet Amos said that the, the Messiah would usher in righteousness like a river. But no one had heard of these prophecies before. This was before that time. Who would be so bold as to name themselves that? Can you imagine? I am going to call myself the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Those are the things that everyone wanted. That's the best of all the worlds. So there's lots of questions with this guy, but not many answers. He's somehow all of it. He's like this legend. He can do the things that none of us thought were possible. We didn't think any one person could fulfill this kind of role. Yet here he stands in front of Abram, the founder, the, the greatest of, of all time for the Israelites. 
and they're a little bit confounded. And, and what does this mysterious man do in Genesis 14? Look at the first thing this guy does in Genesis 14, verse 18 to 19. I have it on the screen here. This is crazy. Melchizedek, this mysterious man, he turns to Abram and Melchizedek blesses Abram by saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Here you have Abram, the founder of God's people. He's interacting with the strange priest and king. Every single person would have expected Abram, who is fresh off of a military victory, to bless Melchizedek. They would have expected Abraham to bless Melchizedek because in those days, the greater blesses the lesser. The founder should be blessing the stranger. The one who is most in charge should be the one giving out that benediction, giving out that blessing, especially since he just showed himself that he's, he's more powerful than anyone else in that area. But in this case, it is reversed. Abram doesn't bless Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abram. Now all the listeners are saying, hold on, that can't be right. The player doesn't tell the coach what to do. The coach is supposed to tell the player what to do. The founder should always get their way, right? The founder should, should know exactly how this should go, but maybe not. You know, everyone's thinking, I thought Abram was in charge. He just won a massive victory. He's God's chosen one. What's going on? Who is this person from below the ranks coming and now he blesses Abram and then things get weirder. At the end of Genesis 14, 20, we're told Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Abram gives an offering to Melchizedek. He gives Melchizedek a tithe. At this point, everyone's like, hold up, time out. Something isn't right here. As priest of Israel, Abram had the rights to receive the tithes from everyone else. Similar to warfare, the troops would, when they would win a battle, they'd take some spoils and they'd come and bring it to the commander of, you know, commander in chief. Same thing would be happening, happening in the old, in the Old Testament with, with God's priests. God's priests wouldn't make any money and so they wouldn't have any ownership and so they were giving their life for the people. They were saying, my life is for you. And so the people would in turn tithe then to those, to those priests so that the priests could eat and that they could live and so that all of that could happen. So this was, this was an entire kind of system set up. Really, Melchizedek should be giving Abram a tenth of all Melchizedek has, but here, again, the giving is reversed. For Abram to give Melchizedek a tithe is another way for Abram to say, Melchizedek's priesthood is better and higher than my own. But yet Abram's commission was from God himself. Abram had the highest commission ever known in the ancient Near East up until that point. Abram was it. Abram was the leader. So how could this be? And then it all happened so quick, like a flash of lightning. And then Melchizedek is gone after this. Just a couple verses. You know, no thunder. No, you know, it's, it's just poof. He's gone. He disappears from the pages of scripture. No more Melchizedek in, in the rest of Genesis or Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. We don't hear of Melchizedek. He's like gone. Just disappears. So the listeners are left in a puzzled, even shocked state. Abram is a priest of God. 
Abram is a founder of God's people, but his priesthood is not as significant as Melchizedek. The name Abram means founding father, but Melchizedek means king of righteousness and peace. Which one is bigger? Apparently, even though Abram is at the center of God's plan, there is someone who exists who is even more significant than Abram. And everyone is wondering, is that even true? How could that be? This is, our, this is our founding guy. This is the guy that we trust. What is going on? This is a mystery. So the rumors begin and the whispers start and the legends linger on. People are starting to tell his story over the fire. You know, have you heard about this Melchizedek? Have you heard about the stuff that this guy can do? Have you heard about his power? Have you heard about his name? Have you heard about all the things that he was able to accomplish? Is there something bigger here that we can't see? And the answer was yes. Their hunch is confirmed. Because this encounter between Abram and Melchizedek, it just takes a couple verses in the Bible. You'd almost miss it if you skip through. This becomes a key promise of scripture a thousand years later. That's right, after a thousand years, people are still talking about this man. Can you imagine? A thousand years later, people are still talking about, people are still intrigued. This was the most interesting man in the world. A thousand years later, David arrives on his scene. Remember David, that shepherd king, who, the one who's made after God's own heart? One day he, he begins to pen a, a poetic song, and I just picture him being in the wilderness, and he's praying, and he, he starts to, to pen this song because he's a musician, and he starts to write out Psalm 110, and he's describing God's power and God's victory. And in Psalm 110, verse 4, which is a passage that is just quoted so many times in this book. Here's what he writes. He writes, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He begins to describe the Messiah. And David says, the Messiah will be a priest forever after the order of, who is that? Melchizedek. He shows up again out of the blue. David remembers this mysterious encounter from a thousand years before And it becomes a picture for what God's promised Messiah will one day be like. As it turns out, God has placed this mysterious man, Melchizedek, into some of the first pages of scripture as a hint kind of to what is coming. It was like God's way of saying this was all a setup. Melchizedek was the first great person to offer wine and bread to God's people, but Melchizedek won't be the last to use some of that imagery. Melchizedek was a real person. He was a very powerful person, but he was more. He was a type of someone greater who would come. He was a picture of the Messiah before they even knew that a Messiah was coming. Before the Messiah even came, God was giving them like a a little, a little like a, you know, preview. And David is convinced that the next Messiah, similar to Melchizedek, is going to be able to take all the expectations that everyone had and he's just going to blow it all out of the water. This man who's going to come. In Psalm 110 verse 4, David was saying what what Melchizedek represents, God is one day going to reveal. Through that verse, God was whispering, you thought Abram was cool? Wait till you see the next guy. 
The next guy won't just be mysterious. He's going to hold the keys to unlock all the mysteries of the universe. So strap on your big boy, your big girl pants and get ready for something big. The story of Genesis 14 became a promise a thousand years later in Psalm 110. And then by the time we get to Hebrews, we've now fast forwarded another thousand years. Now we're a thousand years after David's Psalm and the preacher is now screaming by the time he gets to chapter seven, all of this has been pointing to Jesus. He's saying the partial picture of the mystery man has become a full reality in Jesus, your Messiah. In Jesus, the mystery is solved. In Jesus, you get all of Melchizedek, plus you get a lot more. The preacher in Hebrews is saying that ancient mystery has a face. That ancient mystery has a name. Melchizedek wasn't the point. He was just a pointer. He was just a preview. He was just trying to prepare you. He's trying to get you ready. The real mystery is Jesus come in the flesh to save all of humanity from its misery. Jesus is the prophet and Jesus is the priest and Jesus is the king that we've all been waiting for. He's saying Jesus is better than the best mystery you've ever heard of. Church, don't you love when God flexes his muscles a little bit? Don't you love when he starts to get a little humorous? He starts to break the rules. He starts to show you something you didn't think could be real. This is God's way of showing off. This is God's way of showing you he has been planning your redemption from the very beginning of time. Way back in Genesis 14, when all you had were questions, Jesus was full of answers. That's what he's trying to get to you. And the author of Hebrews is doing complex things to get you here. He's doing, if you were a Jewish listener, you would be impressed. He's going through four different stages of Jewish exegesis. Incredible. Very, very complex what he's doing. He's engaging everyone here. And what he's saying, he's saying the message, he's like, God is like, God is like saying, go ahead and think of the greatest, most powerful, most interesting, most mysterious person you could ever dream up. And that doesn't even come close to reaching the heights of the mystery and power and capability of my son, Jesus Christ. The Dos Equis man has nothing so he can slam a revolving door. <laughs> Now you are seeing why we are taking two weeks on this because I've only now just covered the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 7. Honestly, we could do a whole series on Melchizedek. If I weren't on my way out, I'd be tempted to ask for four more weeks on this. I just don't want to push my luck. I wish we could make this chapter an entire series. Can you imagine? This is the chapter everyone, everyone skips. I'm like, how could you skip this? Because it's hard. We ain't drinking milk anymore. Get that steak out. Get that hard vegetable stuff out. Whatever you eat, this is massive. This is complex stuff. It's meant to blow your mind. It's meant to, whoo, what's going on here? We are spanning thousands of years in one sermon. Before we end, I want us to ask, so what? Does this make any real difference in our lives and for eternity? So it's, it's interesting stuff. Why is it important that we understand that Jesus is both like Melchizedek as well as that he is better than Melchizedek? 
I want to spend all next week actually unpacking this. But I think the simple answer that gets us started can be seen in Hebrews 7.22. Look what Hebrews 7.22 says. Here's what it says. It says, this makes Jesus, let's read that word in the underline. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus doesn't just represent the best of all worlds like Melchizedek did. Jesus goes farther. He can guarantee our entrance into an even better world. We are being told that since Jesus is the fulfillment of all mysteries, Jesus can usher you into the very kingdom of God, and he can even begin to do it here on this earth. For Jesus to be the guarantor, is the guarantee of his own covenant is again a remarkable reversal. No one was expecting this. In the ancient world, it's common. You'd have a powerful person. They would offer some of their goods as legal collateral on behalf of a friend as long as the friend promises to pay the loan back in full. So if God is offering us a covenant to enter, which he is, that's going to be the, the this verse is the theme of the next five chapters, then God should also be demanding of us some sort of a payment, right? If I'm going to give you something, then you got to guarantee that it's going to be paid back. But rather than demanding something from us, God mysteriously offers up himself to guarantee the deal. This was the greatest mystery of human history. Here's what was happening. Rather than God demanding a guarantee from us that we'll be faithful to the new covenant, God provides himself as the guarantee that God's covenant for us will not fail. There is no stronger promise that could ever be made. This is the gospel, Holden Chapel. This verse means God's plan will succeed. God is putting God's own name on the line, and that means failure is not an option for God's people. It means God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven because God's security for God's covenant was God's very life. As John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believed in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. John 15.13, Greater love has no man than this that one lays down his life for his friends. The God who created the trees allows himself to be hung on one so that your enemy could be conquered forever. Jesus is the divine guarantee that whatever God has started, God will finish. That's what this is all about. And he just wants you to realize it. I know Melchizedek was a mysterious man. I know you have a tendency to put your trust in men. But let me tell you about someone who is way better and bigger than all the best and biggest men you've ever known. This is God. And if Melchizedek could do this, God can make a way to make sure nothing will ever fail. What God wants to happen is going to happen. I get so much encouragement from this. What God has started, God will finish. And it means a lot to me because let me tell you, there is some stuff going on in your life that I wanted to be a part of. And God is still working on you. And I want to be a part of seeing how God continues to finish the race with you. And God is not allowing me for that. And so I have to say, God, if it's not me, are you still going to do it? And God's like, absolutely. Mike, 
I'm much bigger than you. I'm much bigger than Melchizedek. I'm, I'm much bigger than, than any of the human people. I have Jesus and I have sent my son as a guarantee that whatever God wants to do here and whatever God wants to do in your heart, God will continue to do. If God has started it, God will finish it. Praise the Lord. That means the human leaders are much less important than your spiritual leader. Thank the Lord for that. You, you want real peace? You want real righteousness? Then draw near to the one whose body was broken like bread for you and whose blood was spilled like wine and who took that imagery and took it up 10,000 notches. And you'll find all the answers you'll ever need. He's the one that you need, church. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. That's Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 3. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the fact that you are so mysterious, that you plant mysterious people into our lives to get us asking questions just so that you can flip the tables over once again and say, you thought that was good. Wait for Jesus. God, people have been talking about Melchizedek for thousands and thousands of years. And so now the author of Hebrews is wanting us to understand that those, those legends, those, those founders, those, those people who, who have been in your life, who you've just been so amazed by, God, they just pale in comparison to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we decrease and you increase, God. We thank you that what you have started, you will finish. And you have all of that power all on your own, God. You've been planning this for thousands and thousands of years. God, please forgive us for, for, for skipping this chapter, God. So easy to skip it because it's, there's just so many complex things going on. You really have been bringing us to now start to deal with the doctoral seminars and really we need to do our homework and we need to chew on this because God, that is a truth that is almost impossible for us to believe apart from your spirit because we look at our circumstances and we start to think about our own strength and the things that we can do and we start to get discouraged. We start to get surprised and we start to get worried and we start to have that anxiousness. We begin to rely on things that are not of you, God. So I pray that through these, this sermon and the next week's sermon, and as we progress farther into Hebrews, God, that you would cement our trust in you. God, that all the questions that we have, that we would find those answers for them in Jesus, and that we would worship you. We'd be true followers of you. God, we thank you that you are a great God. Now, as we worship you, I pray we would not leave without remembering and believing once again how big you are, how good you are, how capable you are. Thank you for this message, God. Thank you for Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 to 3. And all God's people said, amen.